Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Obviously, all the news is about Rishi Sunak and his spending review, deciding which departments get money and uh, which don't. But who does the negotiating behind the scenes? It's someone called the Chief Secretary to the Treasury, basically deputy to uh, the Chancellor. I've been speaking to two people who used to hold that job, David Gork, who did it under Theresa May, and Liam Byrne, who famously left that note uh, to his successor, saying, I'm afraid there's no money at the end of the Labour government. So that's coming up in just a sec. But first, it's Wednesday, so our columnist panel is Alice Thompson and John Kapfner. Let's start with uh, this story about uh, how the Home Office broke Equality's law when it introduced its hostile environment immigration measures. The Equality and Human Rights Commission, of course, not so long ago, was finding that the Labour Party had broken equality law. This time it's the Home Office uh, under Theresa May, obviously uh, imposed uh, this hostile environment policy. Uh, it's now been found to have broken Equality's law. Um, why does every why can no one f- stick to equalities law? I suppose is the first question, Alice. Um, I think it's an incredibly difficult area because you're never quite sure what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, and the language around it. And I think companies do find it hard, and there's whole industries trying to work it out. I think this one's slightly different, just because immigration is so unbelievably emotive as a subject anyway that. Uh, you have to get it absolutely right. And I think everyone felt very difficult anyway on either side about this issue of of um, what we were going to do mixed in with the whole Brexit debate and uh, what we felt about Britain. So um, I think it's more about than just about equalities here. I think it's about um, how we felt about ourselves and how we um, felt who we were as the British as we were going through Brexit. And you know, the Pretty Patel's language and actually Theresa May's language as a Home Secretary changed very much over the years from what we'd been used to, actually, in, in the first decade of the century. Well, what do you think, John? I mean, there's a, there's a, I suppose there's a tension, isn't there, between uh, governments pursuing the policies they were elected on uh, and then them then falling foul of equalities law. It also just reinforces um, the criticism of, of that period of government that... It, um, it just it just went too far, that hostile environment. Yeah, but it's not a recent thing. I mean, uh, I remember Michael Howard's um, pitch uh, when he was briefly Conservative leader during that period when they were properly unelectable, the are you thinking what we're thinking um, type, type approach. And in a way, this whole area seems to bring out the worst in people, or maybe it attracts a particular type of person and there's it it may not just be a particular thing pertaining to the British Home Office it may relate to all interior ministries around the world it's 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 the nasty ministry it's the ministry that does unpleasant things to people and a lot of that is around immigration and you can understand in some ways the frustrations Uh, When people are denied uh, immigration status, it seems to take an inordinate amount of times to remove them. And when you see people being removed and anybody who's uh, been on planes once in a while will have that awful sight of somebody being handcuffed and chucked on a commercial flight. And then there's usually some sort of um, Ferrari around it. It's It's a horrible, horrible situation. But even after the Home Office 
professed to have learned the lessons. There was a, a story only a few weeks ago, which was they were behaving just as badly to those very same Windrush victims who were uh, in, in the process whereby they were trying to seek their compensation. So they were bad once and they're bad again. And there just seems to be something perennially dysfunctional about that place. Yeah, and as we saw last week, you know, even even the relationship between uh, Priti Patel and the uh, officials that work for it's it's um, it just seems to be uh, a massive problem that no one can necessarily get get a get a handle on. Uh, let's move on and talk about uh, good businesses versus bad businesses. A really, really interesting interview with a guy called John Roberts, who's the boss of AO World. Uh, in the Times today, he's saying that retailers that paid out dividends after they got a big boost in their sales during lockdown uh, should uh, consider handing back millions of pounds of taxpayer support. Obviously, some businesses have had business rates relief. Uh, some did use uh, the furlough scheme, although you know, and some of them have agreed to give the money back. Uh, John Roberts saying that executives should go and ask their mum if she would be proud of their behaviour. Is this a good, is this a good <laughs> test of morality, Alice? Well, I think it's a great one, actually, because I think that everyone at the moment is thinking about what they're going to do with their parents at Christmas. And um, I think that probably there is a sense, um, really, of fair play that's really coming out now as we come to, we hope, the end of uh, the pandemic, of who seems to have benefited when they shouldn't have. And I think the supermarkets are a particular example where they've been phenomenal and they really were like an extra service and the staff were incredible about stocking all the supermarkets the whole way through and being very kind to people. And there are all sorts of examples of, of helping the elderly out during the pandemic. And they were, I mean, they've been amazing supermarkets. If you look at the statistics, people really rate them now, the staff at these um, places. But on the other hand, they did benefit massively and they have made huge profits because people can't really shop anywhere else and can't spend their money in restaurants and cafes and we were all, you know, making our little lunches at home and suppers and you know, coffees in it. That all came from the supermarkets mainly. So I think there is a sense that they do need to give something back and that they're the ones that have made the most money, really, along with people like Amazon, who have also obviously made huge amounts of money. So I think there needs to be some sort of reckoning at the end of this about who really needs to help out. And I hope Rishi Sunak is going to do that to a certain extent, is try and balance as much as he can using the tax system just who benefited slightly too much and, and who's done incredibly badly in the last year and who desperately needs help. Can we, can we divide business up into the, the goodies and the baddies, John? Um, yes and no. I mean, I think on, on COVID, and a lot of this predates COVID, on COVID there, there could should have been some fairly straightforward uh, uh, rules around uh, the furlough. And OK, that was brought in at great haste first time round, but they could have adapted it as they went along. One is if you uh, receive any form of government support during this period, you are not allowed to pay dividends and uh, there would be extra rules around um, senior management and CEO pay. You could have simply said that if your pay ratio against the average earnings for your company is more than X, you are disqualified from receiving it. And that would have sorted things out. I mean, even if that was only temporary but i mean a lot of this good good versus bad company there's been loads of sort of management books around this and and over the years it was simply maximizing shareholder value just simply increase profits so you can pay out dividends that was just regarded as the only um criterion of success for a company boss now it's very much also 
around how what your customers think of you and that's around sourcing materials cheap clothing and sweatshops and all that kind of thing and also how you how you treat your staff as well in other words this issue of a company's success uh, is as much about the broader brand i was struck last night I'll, uh, just after bake-off actually uh, channel four <laughs> had a tv show called something like buying things on amazon or something, or how to how to buy things on Amazon, and I was quite struck that the reaction on Twitter. Obviously, people had just been watching and enjoying Bake Off, saying, "What on earth is Channel Four doing?" Basically, running an app. I thought, you know, and it was quite. I was quite struck that in the past, you know, something like Amazon was like the great saviour, and everyone loved the cool and groovy tech firms. And actually, maybe there has been a bit of a shift in attitude. That actually, if if a, if a national broadcaster is going to do a show about how to shop this Christmas, maybe. How to shop and support your local shops is is slightly better than a than a firm that's you know offshore for tax purposes. Yeah, yeah no, I think Amazon right. is a particularly bad example for everyone because we've all had to use it to a certain extent if we wanted something. So, say with books, which is you know if you really love books and you know I I find that I probably go go to my bookshop once a week or twice a week and get books. Um, if you can't, you're using Amazon, you do feel slightly sick that you're not being able to support anyone local mm. and that you're actually effectively making their job so much harder when they open again because everyone will be used to just clicking. And, you know, actually, I think that that's the problem is I think people are actually using Amazon but feeling quite sick about the fact they're having to use Amazon for everything. And I hope we don't shop like that for Christmas. And I don't think anyone's going to be doing wild Christmas shopping anyway. I think that most families that I know are sort of your goal kind of deciding not to have too many presents aren't you because it was just like actually it's really just seeing each other or just talking to each other now that really matters um but i certainly think it's going to be very difficult if we still have to rely on amazon to get everything what do you think john just people need just need to buy copies of my book surely there can't be any left there can't be any left can there Never. I mean, your Alice is right on on this um, on this Amazon point. It's just so easy. Click, click, and you're away. Um, and it's not just books. It's pretty much everything. And there's just, I mean, everybody's been banging on about this for years, and no country seems to be able to deal with it. It's the whole question of the the tax setup for particularly for Amazon, but for all the silicon gaffer co- uh, companies, uh, they just get away with uh, you know not paying their taxes, and therefore they can undercut everybody by a mammoth degree and whether it's a book or whether it's a an item of of household or whatever if you can literally get a third to a half cheaper um and it's very convenient somebody just uh delivers it outside your door the next day uh you know what's not to like so the issue if you're given a market opportunity like that it's actually not really the company's fault it's it's governments all governments faults for for not dealing with the tax situation yeah, I suppose the issue is that it, people would object less uh, to it if they were, you know, if the if the tax uh, situation was tackled. Uh, let's just finally move on and uh, briefly discuss this news that broke this morning uh, from uh, Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, has written a pe- this piece in the New York Times, revealing that she had a miscarriage in the summer. She wrote that. Uh, she writes, I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second, she says. She went on to describe how she watched my husband's heartbreak as he tried to hold the shattered pieces of mine. Uh, I don't really know what to what to think of this, because on the one hand, it's an incredibly uh, personal tragedy. But then for someone who who left public life in the UK because of intrusion into a private life... This seems a slightly odd thing to have done. Am I wrong for thinking that, Alice? I would say yes, to be honest. I think, actually, in this case, 
I think miscarriage is one of those areas where we have never talked about it or discussed it. And a lot of my friends have gone through it. And I think it's absolutely devastating when it happens. But you often feel that you're totally on your own and you're wandering around the streets and no one knows. And you're talking to people with babies and your friends have children and family and you're feeling absolutely ghastly, but you're not allowed to grieve in the same way as you would if you lost a loved one or a family member. And I think it's utterly destroying. It's also incredibly difficult if you already have a child, isn't it? Because you're trying to look after that child at the same time as you're feeling so upset and hurt and she wouldn't have been able to tell her some what was going on. So it's a really, really hard scenario. And I think actually i think it was incredibly um, beneficial as well as brave for her to talk about and i think it was a good thing to talk about normally i say that i think she emotes far too much and i'm really not interested in what she's talking about and i remember the time when she went on their tour to africa and started talking about the difficulties for her and then you did things like you know pull yourself together um and you're sort of feeling that you're in a kind of set of the crown and that it's all completely insane and ridiculous but this occasion, I think actually it's the right thing to do. And I think we're beginning to have a conversation about miscarriage. And I think it's very good for her to have joined in. And I think it's actually really important. I don't think there's any downside to this at all, actually. What do you think, John? No, I, I completely agree with, with you, Alice, on, on this on this point. And um, as you say, it does need to be talked about more interestingly, you know, interesting that she did in the New York Times, very much a sort of sense of, of America uh, is, is her home. But it's it's interesting when you relate it back to you know fact you know truth stranger than fiction and and this whole sort of merging of the crown uh, TV series into you know our perceptions of the actual royal family and the Diana legacy. There's a very interesting phenomenon which is the wealthy and the royal victim, and you would think that's actually an oxymoron. Um, uh, but, you know, th- with Diana and the way she was treated. And then you get to the question of Megal- Megan and uh, to what degree do you agree with the uh, assertion that she uh, she was mistreated by, by the firm or not? But it's always much, much harder and in many ways much more in- quite invidious to sympathise with people who have loads of status, uh, loads of privilege, loads of wealth, uh, that seems not to fall into the category of victim. That was Alice Thompson and John Kampner. Up next, all hail the Chief Secretary to the Treasury. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. All hail the chief, Secretary to the Treasury. Uh, yes, it's uh, Richie Sunak's spending review day. So we've been taking a look at the role of Chief Secretary of the Treasury. It's basically deputy to the Chancellor. It's the ministerial role which controls the purse strings in government. It's currently Steve Barclay who does the job uh, of negotiating with every other minister about the money they get or the cuts they have to make. So I've been speaking to two former Chief Secretaries, former Tory Minister David Gork and Labour's Liam Byrne, who left that note to a successor in 2010 saying, I'm afraid there is no money. But I began by asking David Gork what exactly the Chief Secretary to the Treasury does. 
So the chief secretary is the minister who has got specific responsibility for public spending. So you've obviously got the chancellor who's in charge of everything, but it's a huge task. And therefore, a lot of the work is delegated to the chief secretary. They're, they're, they're the ones who would be in the negotiations with spending ministers. They would be the ones scrutinising departmental spending. They're the ones who really have to say no. Um, sometimes a, a minister would then go and um, escalate this to the to the Chancellor of the Exchequer, but the the Chief Secretary to the Treasury has to be the real hard man or hard woman in 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 the Treasury, saying no, scrutinising spending, um, trying to stop uh, spending departments from doing too much spending. So, Liam Byrne, how did it work when you were Chief Secretary of the Treasury at a time when the economy had just crashed? So we had the benefit of something old-fashioned called a a fiscal framework. So, you know, we had a public spending envelope. We knew how much public spending uh, we wanted to put in to support the economy. And then it was a case of getting the departments to fit. And that meant saving quite a lot of money. Uh, And that is the core business of a chief secretary, which is explaining to people why they can't do the things that they think are a good idea because resources are a little bit tight. How difficult was it for you? Because Alistair Darling had been chief secretary of the Treasury before, and then he was your boss's chancellor. Gordon Brown had obviously been chancellor. He was then prime minister. Everyone seemed, you know, everyone around you is is an expert in how to... Um, uh, balance the books. So um, <laughs> how difficult was for you to do your job? Well, the, it, it was fine. I mean, you, the thing about prime ministers and chancellors is that they like to make people happy, whereas the chief secretary's job is to make people unha- unhappy. Um, so the, uh, the the dirty secret of British politics is that um, people are pretty happy uh, to outsource the, the difficult conversations and uh, the talking turkey to the chief secretary. And the chief secretary has got a you know, enforce the decision because the budgets that you've got are not infinite, they're limited, and you've got to try and get everything to fit within a public spending envelope, which in my case was about 600 billion quid. Is there sometime a case where a chancellor might be, uh, you know, give the impression of being open to the idea that the MP or the minister has put forward uh, and then leaves it to the chief secretary to be the the bad guy who actually then puts the, the, the kibosh on it? Yeah, it can be a little bit of that. Um, I mean, it's really important uh, for the Chancellor and the Chief Secretary to work closely together. And sometimes it suits the Chancellor to let the Chief Secretary (laughs) to be the bad guy. Um, Sometimes um, it suits the Chancellor to be the one who says, oh, right, okay, he or she is being a bit too tough. I'll 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 let you get away with this, or you can do that. Um, so, but 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 if if they're on a completely different page, then it, it's really undermining. Um, and so, I mean, thank, thankfully, I was um, the time I was chief secretary to the treasury. Um, Philip Hammond was chancellor, and he is one of life's natural chief secretaries to the treasury. So so it was it was quite easy to work with him. I don't think he ever particularly undermined anything I was I was trying to do. And and how does, I'm really interested in like the behind the scenes haggling. Do you go to uh, a department and saying we're thinking of giving you this much and they say oh, oh, oh that's nowhere near enough uh, and then you get embroidered some haggling or do they come up with a you know this is how much we want and you say yeah you'll be lucky. How does that how does that sort of work that process and how does it play out? It can be a bit of both. I mean, when it comes to spending reviews, uh, which is where you're working across government, 
um, you are working within a what they described as a spending envelope and you know, therefore you tend to go out the treasury goes out to the departments and says right we need to see your plans whereby you find savings of you know x percent y percent whatever it might be um, there are other occasions where you might be coming up to a, a budget or an awesome statement where in fact you have got a department that goes to the treasury and says look unless you give us some more money we are going to run into these problems uh, and you know, in that case, the Treasury is trying to beat down the bid by the spending department. Um, in other cases, where the spending departments, where, where, sorry, where the Treasury says, right, these are the savings we want, um, the, 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 the spending department is trying to beat up that number, trying to move that number up and sort of say, well, we can't do that, but we can do this. Uh, and you do end up, you genuinely end up with some some haggling. Um, and, and actually, the point where it gets to the ministers, to some extent, the, the ministers are the ones who find it easier to compromise because spending departments will always want more money. Um, yeah, that's that's the nature of spending departments. Um, the Treasury will always want to give less money. That's the nature of the, the Treasury and, and, and officials sort of perform those roles. By and large, ministers can see the other side of the argument a bit a bit better. So, you know, if you're a spending minister, certainly in the governments in which I served, you know, we were as a government committed to trying to get spending under control. Now, in in those circumstances, um, you would you you would find that um, ministers would understand why savings was going to were going to be necessary. On but as a as a as a minister, as a politician, as chief secretary to the treasury, I would also understand that uh, you know ministers had political problems and one would want to help them out. To be honest, it would very often depend upon the particular departmental situation. I mean, I, I was in one one of the curious things I had was that when I was um, chief secretary, the the uh, justice secretary was Liz Truss. Um, and um, the justice, the Ministry of Justice, had some real financial problems, and, and and I actually was involved in saying, okay, have some more money. You need some more prison officers. We will fund that. And then about a year or so after that, uh, I found myself as Justice Secretary, and Liz Truss was Chief Secretary <laughs> to the Treasury. So we'd kind of go into meetings, and and you know, one of us would say, well, you know, I know what your notes say, and I know what my notes say, and you know what my notes say. Um, you know, we can kind of, you know, cut to the chase a little bit. Um, you know, work out, you know, both sides would understand where the other side was coming from. Uh, but is there a bit then of when you start saying, well, we couldn't possibly cut that, and she says, oh, come on, I know you can cut that. All right, oh, yeah, absolutely. Versa. Yeah, you would sort of say, oh, they always say that. And I said, well, yeah, you, you know, that's, that's true, because you used to say that. So, I, yeah, we, we, we would both be quoting each other's words back at each other from you know, 18 months previously. Uh, but, but you know, it, to be honest, it was it was quite helpful because I could say, well, look, from you know, this is sort of, as a spending minister, as the justice secretary. I mean, you, you 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 know what the problem is here. You know how difficult this 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 could be. Um, so so you know, ministers generally be, would be the ones who would be able to find a way of compromising, uh, and, and that and that would be you know, that would be that would be important because otherwise the sort of the officials just tend to uh, lock horns and you don't get anywhere. <laughs> 
And uh, what about try- when you're trying to find savings? Because I think it was earlier this year even, Boris Johnson let it be known he wanted to uh, to possibly slaughter some sacred cows to go after, you know, savings and making sure money wasn't being wasted, apparently not noting that there had been 10 years of, of austerity before. Is there always money that could be saved in, in Whitehall? Um, or is Rishi Sunak already... Uh, going to be struggling to do that after after 10 years of ministers being told to to cut back it, it gets harder um i mean it, it the the there were savings that were you know, that could be made when we came in 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 2010 yeah you know, there were things that could be done and you know it was easier to do for example uh i mean we've heard about this this week public sector pay um when we came in 2010 public sector pay had been growing pretty strongly for, for, for several years. Um, we've now had very considerable pay restraint for 10 years. It, it's harder to go back to public sector pay. I, I think he's going to have to, but yeah, it becomes harder. Um, sometimes there are things that you can, you can constantly do just because there is scope for more efficiency through use of technology, for example. I mean, one of the things that I've absolutely no doubt the Treasury is thinking about um, yeah, given the experience of the last few years, sorry, sorry, the last few months, the different ways of working, you know, what can they do with the public sector estate? Do they need as many offices? Can people work from home more? Uh, therefore, you need less office space. Yeah, there's some savings that you can find there. But look, by and large, public spending has been tight for 10 years. Given, given what is going to need to be done, I think it's going to be hard to look at the at public spending and, and expect that to bear the bulk of the savings that are necessary. You know, fiscal consolidation, to use that phrase, is 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 going to have to rely pretty heavily on taxes rather than spending on this occasion. It's a different set of circumstances than in 2010. So, Liam Byrne, who was good and who was bad? Which of your former cabinet colleagues were were ready to? to settle and who haggled right down to the last minute. <laughs> I'm not going to name the bad, but most, I don't know whether David has got kind of unfolded this strategy, but basically you, you, you go in um, with a bunch of departments who you know want to settle early and you want them settled early in order to give examples to the other the others you, you then have a bunch of departments who you know are going to be bloody awkward and therefore they're going to be in the end game. Um, and then you've got this kind of grey middle ground where you're just trying to make as much progress as, as quickly as you can. And so, but the, but the conversations that are are best. I mean, I remember in particular Andrew Adonis um, and indeed his permanent secretary, um, Mr. Devereux, and and they were superb because they knew what they wanted to do. They wanted to try and get high speed two done. Um, they had a pretty clear sense about how much in savings we were going to be asking for them. And they'd given quite a lot of thought to how they were going to restructure their budget and indeed postpone or cancel things in order to unlock their ambitions. And so, you know, although we had to inflict a degree of pain on their budgets, they they had a game plan. And when you've got people who know what they want to do and are prepared to be upfront and honest about some of the sacrifices they want to make, the conversation goes rather smoother <laughs> was that your experience as well david yeah i think there are there are two approaches in, in terms of spending ministers some would want to go with public pressure they'd get stuff in the papers you know, they'd make a nuisance of themselves and make it sort of politically as difficult as possible not to give them what they want 
um, others w- would be model ministers who, exactly as, as Liam describes in the context of Andrew Adonis, you know, they'd have a plan, they'd have a strategy, it would be realistic, they would prioritise. And if they can convince you that they will spend money well, that in fact this is not going to be wasted, uh, that this is going to deliver something for the government, then as the Treasury, you know, you, you are there to say no, but, but sometimes you'll say yes to good behaviour um, in the hope of encouraging others. I'm not sure it ever works, but you, you do want to reward those who have you know, addressed this properly. Liam, looking ahead to obviously Rishi Sunak and the spending review, what would you think he should be doing? It's difficult to try and find savings after 10 years of austerity. What's, what, what do you think he should be looking at? Um, so at this stage, I don't think Rishi should be looking for savings. You know, the head of the IMF, the head of the World Bank, they're really clear about their message to advanced economies, which is to do whatever it takes to get unemployment down. We know that high levels of unemployment cause engine damage. They scar people's earnings for life. They damage the trend rate of growth in the economy. Um, what Rishi should be doing is bringing forward the capital budget. So he's carefully put aside a number in the last budget, uh, $358 billion in capital spending over the next five years. He should be trying to bring about a quarter of that forward in a good old-fashioned Keynesian demand-side stimulus to get high levels of unemployment down in places where it's spiking um, over the course of next year. David, do you agree with that? Not entirely. The problem here is that, uh, look, I, I think if you can if you can find savings, you should find savings. I, I would agree with Liam that this is not about you know, net reductions in spending at this point. It's too early in the recovery. Well, the recovery hasn't begun yet, but um, it's too early for that. Uh, but nonetheless, if you can lay the groundwork for finding savings, you're going to need to find some savings in the course of you know, two, three, four years down the line. So if you can lay the groundwork for doing that, I mean, any savings you make now, you can plough into additional spending. On capital spending, I agree with Liam in theory, but the government has got very ambitious plans on capital spending. The, the history of governments of all colours is that they can't spend that money as quickly as they intend to. There is a bit of an optimism bias. These capital projects take longer than the government usually anticipates. If it can bring anything forward, then great. But the experience of Liam's time and my time is that it just wasn't possible to bring these things forward. You know, try as best you can, but I wouldn't rely on that. Um, I want to talk about Rishi Sunak and his, uh, you know, he's a bit flash sometimes, whether it's on Instagram or his photos of him wearing a hoodie uh, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I think it's fair to say that Liam, your old boss, Alistair Darling, I'm not sure he's ever been described as flash before. I don't think he owns a hoodie either. I'm, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> David, when you were Chief Secretary of the Treasury, uh, was that with Philip Hammond? Um, are you aware that he owns a hoodie? I, I'm, I'm not aware that he owns a hoodie. I'm not aware that he's ever been seen in public without a jacket. So, um, <laughs> so I, I, I'd be very, very surprised if he'd ever be photographed in a hoodie. Is it a risk for a Chancellor at a time where they are going to, uh, Rishi Sunak is going to have to make difficult decisions to be doing all this stuff with putting his signature on Instagram pictures for the, all the good news? Because at some point he's got to own some bad news as well, David. He he will. And I, I think 
yeah, the next few months at one level might be quite difficult for him. But you know, to be fair, he does seem willing to take some tough decisions, you know, and whether that's going to be on spending or taxes. Uh, I, I think he is going to need to, to do that. Liam's right to say there's a point about timing, but, but ultimately he is going to have to do that. But look, I, I think he's been a successful salesman, if you like, of his of his policies. He's, he, he's been the best presenter of the cabinet and you know he has a particular style and the public are liking it so um, I'm sure he'll carry on doing that but it doesn't get away from the fact that he's going to have to do some quite tough things but as far as I can see he seems to know that. Liam it's quite noticeable in recent weeks that the Labour Party has turned its fire on uh, Rishi Sunak you know he's he's been the most popular politician in the country for most of uh, this year that, that presumably is a deliberate tactic. Yeah, it's deliberate because we disagree with them. Um, so we think that there are uh, decisions on which you should listen to the head of the IMF and the World Bank, who are saying that this is not the time to make cutbacks in a way that would damage lives and livelihoods. So, you know, a classic example is the um, looming cut in universal credit, you know, taking a thousand pounds from next April out of some of the poorest families in the country frankly, would be unwise. Um, we've got food banks in Birmingham, where I'm talking to you from, who are still struggling because they're running out of food, uh, because demand is so high. Um, you know, equally, as I've said, you know, we think there's a strong case for bringing forward a much more vigorous um, capital stimulus, because if you're investing in things like uh, retrofitting, that is good for the environment, it's good for tackling energy poverty, um, and it's good for jobs as well. And, and, and that's where, you know, in a way, capital spending and capital projects have moved on a little bit from, from David and I's time. So whereas, you know, David is right to say in the past, it was sometimes difficult to get big capital projects out the door because often we were trying to build very significant bits of infrastructure. If you're talking about retrofitting, that's a, a very different kind of scale of activity. It's good for white van, woman and man. Um it's and it's it's just a, it's a it's a much smaller scale um, investment if you think about the individual project, but it adds up to something very very significant. So there are different ways of getting the money out the door. I think now, um, I think you'll hear a lot from Rishi about the green recovery. I mean, I think that is probably a new bit of public consensus. But I, you know, I think I think the reason the political attack has, on on Rishi has, has sharpened up is because he appears to be the guy in government taking the decisions, and, and we think some of the decisions should be better. Just before I let you go, Liam, I've obviously got to ask you about the notes. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, when you indeed. when you left government in 2010 and left the note, I mean, an entirely factual note saying, I'm afraid there is no money. But it really, uh, to your successor, David Laws, who also, um, ended up not being there for very long, um, it was a, it, as a political uh, prop. Uh, David Cameron was still brandishing it five years later, the 2015 election campaign. Uh, presumably, uh, you you wish you'd never <laughs> you wish you'd never put pen to paper. True. I mean, I thought I was honouring an old um, treasury tradition. I mean, it's a tradition that goes back to Winston Churchill, actually, and indeed uh, Reginald Maudling. Um, I couldn't have predicted that uh, Mr. Laws was going to be my successor, and. Um, yeah, I'm afraid it was a, a foolish thing to do. Um, and my only comfort is that Mr. Laws and Mr. Cameron and indeed Mr. Osborne are no longer members of the House of Commons. Did Yvette Cooper leave you in note? Because obviously it's slightly different because you were both in the same party, but you, you replaced Yvette Cooper. Did she leave you a note? 
I'm I'm afraid I'm going to honour, actually, what I thought was the old tradition, which is that (laughs) correspondence between honourable members is uh, between honourable members. That that sounds like she did, but um, you're not going to tell me what it said. What about you, David? When you when you left the role, did you leave a note on the desk for Liz Truss? I, I didn't actually, and I I don't think I got one from Greg Hands either. But um, yeah, I'm afraid so, I ruined the tradition for everybody. I know. I think exactly <laughs> after Liam's experience, who's who's going to do that? <laughs> Well, that's it for this episode of Red Box. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Maybe even leave us a rating because it helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. We release an episode every day, Monday to Thursday, featuring the best bits of my Times radio show. You can listen to the whole thing uh, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's available on DAB, online, via Smart Speaker or on the Times radio app. If you want to read more about all of the stories that we've been discussing, then go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. 